this, this past week, a lot of our Oikos groups kind of went out into the community and served our neighbors in a variety of ways. It seems like a lot of our groups were serving foster care and orphans this, this month. I heard back from one of our groups, um, and I just want to pass along kind of a word of gratitude. There was one family in particular that has taken in several foster children. Some of them were aging out of the foster system. Some of them were little bitty kids. Um, people taken from homes and needing a place to go so they're not staying at DCS offices. And the Oikos family, they chipped in thousands of dollars, bought lots of furniture to kind of get these families up and ready. And then some of the groups, they showed up and they helped assemble it all, put it together. And the family just passed this along. They said, as, as we go around the, the, the quiet, super amazing, cute house that is their house, that has been transformed. They said, I only see the love of a savior. We seek tonight, and our kids shared what was their favorite part of the change, and everyone was so excited to share their own opinions with smiling faces. The Lord has placed these kids in this house. They've been seen. They've been loved. They feel special that they're worth the time and the effort. Um, and they said, even that bed, the one that took so long to put together. Now, for those of you who weren't there, you'd, it was like a six-hour project. So they said, the only credit goes to the only one who can make these make these things happen using his children. So thank you, thank you, thank you for loving them well. Um, those, those stories are just happening all over the city. We have seven Oikos groups doing similar things. So we praise God for what he's doing through your act of service. Um, I'm excited to see kind of what becomes of those things. Um, all right. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one. I've already said it, but I would really love for you to grab one so you can kind of follow on in the text today. One reason that's a point of emphasis is because today we're talking about Scripture. It would be really wonderful, it's fitting even, to have a copy of the Scriptures in your hand as we're talking about the Word. 463 if you have the one from the coffee shop. We're in a series on what we call the transforming graces. It's the rhythm of life of following Jesus. If this is your first time at Oikos Church, this is really the heartbeat of our life together. We, we're so glad you're here, but we really want to invite you to follow Jesus with us. That's what we're doing here. We don't just go to church. We follow Jesus together. We're practicing discipleship in community. And to practice discipleship means we have to have some practices to go along with them. So in this series, we're exploring what those can look like. And we're looking especially at the person of Jesus and kind of the, the history of God's people, how these practices shape their lives and their faith long before we ever were born into this story. So the GRACES is an acronym, and today we're looking at the, the second part, the R, and it's reflect on the word. What are the sometimes some distractions? And these distractions can sometimes leave us disinterested because whether it's, is it, is it taste or from ancient Hebrew Babylonian poetry, one of these things feels more compelling and more relevant. When, especially when that cycle gets fed over and over and over again, our minds almost get numb to the, our capacity to be able to do this well. Does that kind of capture where most of us, now I'm not saying, I'm not giving you reasons to not read the word. I'm trying to capture the reasons why we may not. Because our lives are full of other things. I can share a, kind of a couple of anecdotes from my own life. Right now, my daughter, she's nine, her name's Annie, and I were reading the book of Acts at night. We just do one chapter. And it's like all three of those reasons are coming 
just right here in, in my life. And I'm the guy, again, who's preaching on what it means to reflect on the Word on Sunday, and yet it's still sometimes hard because I'm, I'm like out in the yard working. It's bedtime. Chelsea, so somebody's got to come get me and convince me to go read the Scripture to my daughter because I'm distracted. And then when we do open up the Word, Acts is the, one of the most straightforward books there is in the Bible. And still, after every line, Amy's got a question because it's difficult. The names are unfamiliar. The places are unfamiliar. Even the, the experiences are somewhat unfamiliar. And so those questions and the difficulty. And then for her, it's leading to this kind of decision point in her life on, is now a good time to give her life to, to Christ? And so all of this is happening just in my life right now with my daughter, but it's also happening in my own life. Is it happening in yours? Maybe with your friends? Maybe with your spouse? Maybe with just you and or your roommates? Where are you at with Scripture today? I'm not asking to answer out loud, but just kind of have a recognition of where you're at with the Word. And then just consider what that might be revealing about your own heart. Can we take that kind of posture in as we step into what the Word actually says about the Word? We're going to look at Psalm 1 today. Psalm 1. Would you turn there? And the reason we're looking at Psalm 1, there's, you know, there's hundreds of texts in the Bible about Scripture. And so how do you choose, how do you choose one? So what I'm doing with Psalm 1 is that Psalm 1 is actually this preview for the rest of the Psalms. There's 150 of them. And these are poems that kind of capture and voice the life of God's people. But this is like an introduction into them. This is a picture of what it looks like to approach Scripture well. That's, that's why we're going here. And then we're not just looking at Psalm 1. We're going to be asking, how did Jesus embody this? How does Jesus fulfill this? And so as we go through Psalm 1, I'll kind of be reflecting on Jesus' teachings and Jesus' habits. And then we'll kind of end with what it could look like to practice, reflect on the Word today. All right, that's where we're going. Step in there with that heart, heart posture that you've been able to recognize from the last few minutes. Um, let me just read Psalm 1. And then we'll walk, kind of walk through this teaching. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Okay, let's kind of walk through this slow, slowly and reflect on the person of Jesus. Let's start with this word blessed. Blessed is uh, it's just a word that means happy. This is a picture of the good life. Do you remember how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed, 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 blessed. It, we call it the Beatitudes. He begins the Sermon on the Mount by capturing the blessed person. The blessed per This is what the good life is really about. Now, blessed, I know, it's like hashtag blessed. It's almost like a mockery today. But what would, maybe it's not your word, but what would your picture of the good life look like? Someone is saying, we have a picture of the good life, and it's not what the world is handing you. Blessed is the man who does, and it, 
it says a couple of things that he's not doing. He does not walk in step with the wicked. Notice the, the movement changes from walking to standing in the way that sinners take to sitting in the seat of scoffers. And so I think what's happening is that it shows us that there are really three postures that leave you, lead you away from God. One is a posture of thinking like the world. The second one is a, a posture of behaving like the world. That's the standing in the, in the way of sinners. And then the third one is the people that you belong with in the world. And the blessed person, he says, has to be able to recognize the culture around you in certain ways. And it's almost a countercultural approach to the good life. I don't know if that's appealing to you. I'm, I'm struggling to even capture what would the good life look like for you? Does it look like scrolling endlessly or swiping? Does it look like Netflix and binging? Does it look like working incessantly? Does it look like constant anxiety and stress? Because when I look at most people in, in the culture, it seems like there's a lot of that, of searching for meaning and grasping busyness to satisfy it. But what Psalm 1 is saying is that the way of the world, it promises a satisfaction that it cannot deliver, whereas the blessed man, the good life, the happy person, takes a different approach. A different approach shows up, especially in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, The blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now the law, it may sound like it's just talking about like the, the orders, the commandments, like the Ten Commandments of God. But actually this phrase, law of the Lord, it, it's bigger than that. It refers to all of Scripture. So reading one commentary on this. He says, Modern people might think that the term law of the Lord meant only the Ten Commandments that were explicitly divine legislation. But the broader use of the, this phrase shows that it's often referring to all of Scripture. The Scripture is all law in some sense, in the sense that it's normative, meaning it's binding on the believer as an expression of God's will, whether taking the form of actual legal precepts or not. He says that's not the point. Do you see, the law of God is that whether it's a story, whether it's a poem, or a law, or a command. He says all of it is over us. We put ourselves under it, and that way all of Scripture is, is law. It's legally binding on us in some way. To take a posture underneath. He says this is the good life. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The Psalms say that the word, your word, O Lord, the, the law of the Lord, it is my heart's desire. And he says, and so on his law he meditates day, day and night. The, the view of Scripture that Scripture has about Scripture is that it is inspired. This is a really important word because it, it positions itself between two ends of a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, some people have, um, let's see, Tim Mackey, Bible Project, he calls it the golden, the golden tablets view of Scripture, like the Mormon view of Scripture or the Muslim view of the Quran, that God just tells them exactly what to say in, in the language, in the words. This is just dictated from God. Dictation is on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, this is the view of a lot of progressive Christians today, a, a lot of non-Christians. This is mostly just a human work. It's a human striving for creativity, expressing the divine within them in some way. 
But this is not the, the posture of Jesus or the approach of Jesus in, in scriptures to what the word is. When Jesus talks about scripture, like in Matthew 22, he can quote from the Old Testament, from his, his Bible. And he'll say, David said, by the Holy Spirit. Do you see, David, a human, said, by the Holy Spirit, divine. It's somehow, in Jesus' logic, it's putting both human and divine into one thing. The apostles, they have the same posture. His, his kind of right-hand man, Peter, is one of his best friends in his 30 years in ministry, or his 30 years of life and his three years of ministry. Peter says that the prophets, they, they spoke as they were moved along by God. The prophets spoke, and God was moving them. You see, both of them are working together. The Apostle Paul, that Jesus appeared to, his approach to Scripture, he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's breathed out. And what he's doing, I think, in 2 Timothy 3, where he says that, is he's riffing on creation text. Do you remember in Genesis 2, it says that he, he forms man out of the dust, you know, and the clay. He's like a potter just creating this human. Then it says he breathed into him what? The breath of life. He, he went from mud into a human. He went from dust into this image bearer. That's the, the word that Paul's playing with there. And he says God is, he takes like a book. He takes the language of human. I'm sorry, guys. He, he takes our language and then he breathes it with power and life. It, it becomes this life-giving power, this, this scripture. And he says all scripture is, is breathed out by God. And so it's useful for teaching. It can grow us in instruction. It's also useful for rebuking. It exposes our heart's sins. He says it's useful for correcting us and for training us. It, it, you see the transformative power because it's not just human and it's not just divine. It's it's both of those working together. I think this is Jesus' view of Scripture, and it seems to be Scripture's view of Scripture. I heard uh, Andrew Wilson, he's a British guy. He says, Scripture's true like jazz. True like jazz. Um, think of Louis Armstrong. He's playing a trumpet. When you hear Louis Armstrong or whoever play a trumpet, is it the instrument or is it the person? Is it? He says, it's Louis' breath but it's the, the sound of the instrument. Does that make sense? They're, they're both working together. That's what we discover in Scripture. That, so we should, when we open them up, we should expect them to be very human. We should expect them to be contextual and to reflect specific people in specific situations and contexts and times and places. But we should also expect them to be packed full of God's life-giving, transforming power. We should expect it to be alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Does that make sense? I think whenever it says our delight is in the law of the Lord, it's because this is the law of the Lord. And so it says that we meditate. The, the good life is grown out of meditating on Scripture day and night. This word meditating takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes in Scripture, it can be like a growl. There's a lion in the book of Isaiah, it's prowling for its prey. And then you can start hearing it growl. That's this word meditate. It's like, that looks delicious. <laughs> um, Eugene Peterson, he's a kind of contemporary um, 
recently passed, but contemporary author on Christian spirituality. He says it's kind of like when a dog has a bone and just gnaws on it. It, it relishes it. It enjoys it. Um, I'm not a dog person, but I've heard that dogs like bones. Um, but it's not just growling and gnawing and, and kind of delight in something. But meditating is much more often it's speaking. It's, it's speaking to yourself. It's, it's literally, in Hebrew, the word muttering. Have you ever seen somebody kind of, they seem to be muttering to themselves? Um, not at lakeside, but just like, that's, that's this practice of meditating. Now, there are different versions of meditation on offer today. There's Eastern versions of like emptying your mind. That is not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is actually filling your mind, not just your mind, but your lips. You, you become very active in, in this practice. So Psalm 63, he says, on my bed, I remember you on all the night watches. I meditate on you. Have you ever woke up in the night? Like, for instance, if there's a storm with a bunch of lightning and thunder like last night. That's, that's what he's saying. And he says, at night, scripture comes to mind and I just think of you. Psalm 77, I will meditate on all your works and I will consider all your mighty deeds. He says, I, he's, met, he's muttering them to himself. You remember the, the leader of God's people is a guy named Joshua. And the Lord entrusts this man with leadership of God's people. And he says, I want you to meditate on the book of the law day and night. I want it to be, he doesn't say on his heart. He says, I don't, do not let this book of the law depart from your, and we would read in mind, don't let it depart from your heart. What he actually says is don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditation is spoken. It's, it's verbalized. It's, it's fully embodied. Be careful to do it, and then you'll be prosperous and successful. And so what we see in the Psalms is a lot of times we actually end up not only speaking to God the words of Scripture. A lot of Scripture is aimed at us. You know, we speak like the language of Psalms back at us. And so, oh, my soul, my soul. You're, you're talking to yourself. You're trying to talk yourself into the truths that you know at a heart level, but you're not experiencing as it happens in your life right now. And so you, you kind of reason with yourself. You're talking yourself into the truth of Scripture. So meditating, and it says day and night. This is really the rhythm of God's people. To begin and end the day with Scripture, there's a lot of precedent to that. This is, I think, what we see a lot with Jesus, where it says he would kind of pull himself away early in the morning, and he would go be alone with God. He had these rhythms of day and night, what happens when we do this? This is where it, this psalm gets really beautiful. Verse 3. It says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Because in an arid place, if you're planted by the stream, that's, that's the life source. This is an Eden image. You remember the Garden of Eden? It had these waters running through, and there's trees that are planted there. And it says that that's where the good life really is. It's, it's like the streams of water are the Spirit of God. And he's saying, the person who meditates knows where to put your roots. That this is a life-giving source, even though some of the other ones may say that they have life. He says, this one will not let you down. I do a lot of gardening, apparently. Um, I planted seed. I've talked about a garden. Now I'm going to talk about a tower garden. A tower garden is a hydroponic system, which means... It just has water. There's no soil. And so the roots kind of hang down. If you've ever been to Epcot, they have a lot of hydroponic. 
the, the roots hang down, and a water pump sends nutrients just constantly trickling over the roots. It's in an ancient kind of way, living water. Living water is something that moves. It's, it's sustained by this. But the other day, I came home from working up here at the office, and I looked over at the tower garden, which sits on our back patio, and every leaf in the tower garden was just totally wilted. It was just because, it, as it happened that day, somehow the hose that was connecting the pump to that system had been disconnected for only a few hours. And every plant was devastated under the scorching heat of the sun, almost immediately. It's, it's amazing how fast plants can wither when they're separated from, when, when their roots aren't sustained by streams of water. He says, the good life is people who know where to plant your roots. And you plant them by streams of water. And look what happens, though. He says, that yields its fruit in season, and then the leaf does not wither. This is a beautiful picture to me. Because it doesn't say that they yield fruit in every season. If you've lived long enough and you've kind of walked through Scripture, you know that not every season of life is as fruitful as you would hope for it to be. There are lots of seasons that feel like winter. I've talked with a, a few believers here. Um, I think of David Hall. He, I think he describes his faith as like a winter faith. It's just, sometimes it needs sustain. I was listening to another young woman that's, that's in a winter season right now. It's where, like, the fruitfulness is, it can get dormant. It doesn't mean it's dead, but it doesn't look like springtime. It doesn't look like a harvest season. It, it feels differently. Have you ever had a season like that? But there are, when people are planted by streams of water like Scripture, it yields fruit in season. At the appropriate time when sustained by Scripture, Scripture can actually sustain you through those seasons of dormancy. Scripture can sustain you if you hold on to that life-giving water. The Spirit of God can sustain you through grief and through tragedy, through loss, through hardship, through loneliness. The, the Scriptures themselves give voice to this, and they are a, an amazing companion. But it, it doesn't look like fruitfulness. Fruitfulness only shows up in its season. And, but he says, but in, in those other seasons, it doesn't wither. It doesn't wilt immediately like, um, like my, my tower garden. I remember there was one season in Kelsey's life. Kelsey is my, my wife. She's downstairs teaching children right now. But there was one especially difficult season in our family, in our marriage, where I remember how she had to seek out Scripture just in order to be sustained. I mean, to function. And so what she did was she found, um, through the counsel of other more mature sisters in Christ, she found texts that she could memorize. And in this season of desperation, in this winter season, it was all she could do was to just say those to herself. Janet, I think you were probably one of those, those people who helped her with that season. It wasn't that she, she didn't have like energy. She didn't want to go exploring. She didn't want to study. It, it, that was not her season for scripture. It was a season of desperation where all she wanted was to get through the day. And the only thing that could get her through the day was a word not in her heart, but a word on her lips. 
because she needed to hear it. This, I think, is what Scripture means by meditation. It's, it gives you stability. It gives you peace. It gives you courage in times of difficulty and ad adversity and upheaval. It helps you stay rooted, one author says, in divine water when all other sources of moisture, sources of joy and hope and strength, whenever they all dry up, this one keeps you from withering. In contrast, the psalmist points to what he calls chaff. Chaff is... It's like you, you take the husk of something and you throw it up and it blows away in the wind. No, there's different kinds of plants, right? There's trees that are like hardwoods that take time to develop. And then there's something like corn, which can grow seven feet in a couple of months. But then at the end of the harvest season, they turn to chaff. They die and they're gone. This is actually how Jesus himself talks about scripture and people approaching the word. He says, some people, they spring up, and then they receive the word with joy, readily. They go through a season where it's just like, God, give me more of the word. He says, but then when the sun rises, it says the heat scorches them, and they wither. Whenever Jesus is interpreting this parable, Jesus says that a lot of people, it's when persecutions and trials arise, they, they tend to wither. He says, this is the people who are like rocky soil. They're not sustained by scripture. He talks about the deceitfulness of riches, how they choke out the word. Do you recognize that language from our, our generosity liturgy that we read each week? It says there, there are pressures in the world like money and wealth and career. There's these pressures in the world like grief and tragedy and loss. He says the scriptures have the power to sustain us through them to, so that we are not like the culture around us where it's just, it promises a good life, but it's actually just anxiety-filled and short-term, and it can't be cashed in. He says they're like chaff, and the wind blows them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And so the final picture is kind of come full circle. You remember how it begins with walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the, in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. He says, now, at the end, when judgment comes, what we will see is that those people you wanted to stand with will no longer be standing. That direction of life that promises flourishing, it's going to be like chaff that blows. It's short term. He says, but on the other hand, the righteousness of God is tapped into. Remember, Paul says, Scripture is useful for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. There's a power in the Scriptures to sustain us through all of these seasons of life. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he warns, he says, people are, are blown about by every wind of doctrine. This, this new version of progressive Christianity or the old heresies that deny who Jesus is, he says, there's winds of doctrines that come, but it's the power of God in Scripture that actually ends up sustaining us. All right, Psalm 1 is a, a beautiful, amazing text, and it introduces you into this life of the Psalms. It says, I want to meditate on it day and night, because we know the truth of this word. He says, it's like a lamp to our path. It's a light to our way. He says, it's, 
if this is your delight, it leads straight into that blessed life. So how do we do it? We know why we don't. And we know, I, I, I'm assuming, but most of us know that we want to, that we should. So how? What's in there? How? What do I do with this? What would this look like? At Oikos, our rhythm of life is grounded in um, six key habits. We talked about one last week called give thanks, a life of gratitude and worship, a, a daily rhythm of saying thank you to God and to other people. It's going to change us from the inside out. The second one in graces is R, and it's reflect on the word. When I say reflect on the word, I mean taking a look at scripture the way Jesus did in order to live the good life like he did. Um, I think there are lots of ways to live this out. Let's just look at three. Up, in, and out. Up, it, what I mean is your relationship with God. In, I mean your relationship with the church. And out, I mean our relationship with our friends and neighbors in the world. Scripture has so, so much to offer these things. And so I don't want to hand you a rhythm of life except to say the scriptures have to be part of it. But I, I think there's a lot of freedom to come up with how you can do this your rhythm with God, your rhythm with your group, and your rhythm in the world. I'm going to kind of move quickly from there, though, because I, another piece of our reflect on the word rhythms is the two sides of embrace and resist. What we're aiming at here is to embrace the voice of God and to resist the voices of culture, to embrace the voice of God and to resist the voices of culture. Um, there's an author named Justin Early in his book, The Common Rule. He says, as an, an attorney, his life gets so filled with busyness. He just works long hours. It's just constant pressure thinking about cases. Maybe that's like your work or your studies in school. It just, it's kind of consuming. He says, but what makes it worse is that when you start your day by checking email or by scrolling your Twitter feed and you get just inundated with these messages and voices of culture. And so, Justin, he says, I really recommend, this has been life-giving, scripture before phone. Scripture before phone. Um, could you just give that a try? Do you th what, what difference do you think it might make if you began your day with scripture before screens, before scrolling, before swiping, scripture before phone? I think that captures both the embrace and the resist. Um, I want to share just a couple of ways that this can look like, but mostly I'm trying not to limit you, but to spur you on to a rhythm of life that you can step into and, and try this month. Um, the, there are three ways that I'm going to talk about very quickly. The first is read, the second is reflect, and the third is recite. Um, by read, I think our culture, um, a church culture, like American church culture, we seem to think that the primary way of reading scripture is privately. And you go through the whole Bible kind of in a year. Um, if you haven't read the whole Bible, I would totally recommend reading your Bible. <laughs> read. Just read the Bible. But if you, if you think that's the only way to read scripture, I think it actually doesn't reflect the biblical world. In the biblical world, most people can't read. And so what it looks like is people getting together and reading aloud. This is how Deuteronomy was read. This is how, like Nehemiah, when they discover the law, it says that they build this platform, Nehemiah stands on it, 
and they start reading the law, and all the people are listening, they're attuning, and the priests are helping them understand. It's, it's read in community. It's read aloud in community together. Um, in, in the New Testament, we'll have these clues that even those are meant to be read in a church gathering. He'll say things like, let the reader understand. And we think, yeah, I'm, I'm reading, I'm the reader. It's like, no, the public reader. This is actually a, an official position in early Roman discourse. What would it look like for your group to just get together and read Philippians? Just read Ephesians. Just read, if you get so bold, Genesis. You could read the Torah in 12 hours if you got together with a group. Maybe we'll do that someday. And some of you are just like, please don't do that. I think that would be an amazing display of kind of, we are the people of God who come under the word and we, we love this thing. There's a lot of ways to read scripture. If you haven't read it, try it. The second way is to reflect on scripture. By reflect on scripture, I'm, I mean, if the other one's quantity, this one's more quality. If the other one's fast, this one's slow. If the other one's reading long sections like Genesis, this one's maybe only reading a few verses and trying to internalize them. This is the muttering, the meditating that we see in the language of the Psalms. It, it's reflecting. It's, but I think most meditation and reflection has to start with study. And the, the reason, Tim Keller captured it in his book called Prayer, he says, meditation on a text of the Bible assumes that you've already studied and interpreted it. You know something about what the text means. You can't reflect on or enjoy what you don't understand. He says, unless you, you do the first, the hard work of answering those questions about a text in study, then your meditations won't be grounded in what God is actually saying in the, in the passage. Something in the passage may hit you, but it may hit you expressing almost the opposite of what the biblical author, inspired by the Spirit, was saying. When that happens, Keller warns, you are listening to your own heart or to the spirit of your own culture, not to God's voice in the scriptures. I think study is an essential part. And so one thing that you can do is just practice reflecting on passages that you already understand or that are already being taught in other contexts. To step into these. The Psalms is a really wonderful place to go into here. We can start with Psalm 1. Another way to reflect, though, is to practice what's sometimes called prayerful reading. I think this is a beautiful way to read. It takes the text of Scripture, and it doesn't just examine it academically, but it, it reads it and processes it, and then gives it to God in prayer. Now, this is not reading, close the book, and then praying. Prayerful reading is reading and then giving that language back to God in prayer. It's, it's a bridge between the text and God where we're communicating, where it's backwards and forwards, where we listen to God, and then we speak Scripture back to Him. Does that make sense? It's, it's a prayerful reading of taking what He said and saying it back to Him in our own words. Prayerful reading, and of course there's something like a spiritual reading, where this way of reflecting, it really puts yourself into the story. Once you understand the story, then you can kind of experience what God might be saying to you if you were in that passage. These are practices that I'm really excited for me and for Reed and for your group leaders to kind of step into with you as we continue this journey of discipleship together. We, if there's, I've already, I know I've shared so many. If I've shared too many, what I'm saying is like, there's a lot of ways to read. There's a lot of ways to reflect. 
Can you do one? Can you please try? The, the third one is recite. recite. Reciting isn't just memorizing scripture. It's actually speaking scripture. And I think this is one of the most powerful ways that we internalize scripture. This actually requires meditation because it's constant muttering to yourself. It becomes internalized through the memorization. And then when it's recited, it has power. Scripture says that the word of God is living and active. It, it can pierce. But it also says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It can, you can wield it against the enemy. It becomes this weapon for the attacks against our identity that happen. In, but it can only be wielded if you know it. And so Jesus in the wilderness is saying, it is written, it is written. You see that there's a lot of ways to engage scripture. I just encourage you to step into one. Tonight, tomorrow morning, this week, just step into a regular rhythm of reflecting on the word in a variety of ways. And I think this is the life-giving habit that really shows that we are people of the book. This is who we are. Let me, let me close. Um, appreciate your attention today. But even what I've said is talking a lot about us. It talks a lot about us and us reading and us and, and doing this, and it's a lot of us. That is not the point of Scripture. That is not the experience of Scripture. Because when you open up Scripture... One, one author, he, they say, it's like looking through a keyhole. And then you realize that someone is looking back at you through that same keyhole. That the experience of Scripture is actually an encounter with the Word of God. The Word, the Logos. Because when you read, you should expect to find someone there, not just something. This is how Jesus talks about Scripture. He says, you search the Scriptures, you think you have salvation in them. They are these that testify about me. After Jesus is crucified and raised, do you remember he's on the road to Emmaus and he has a couple of friends walking with him. And they don't even recognize him. But what does he do? He opens up the Scriptures and it says that he showed them from the law and the prophets that all of these things written about him had to be fulfilled, that he had to suffer and die. This is crazy to me. Because if I was raised from the dead, the first thing I would do is not a Bible study so that people could see me in Scripture. I think I would say, it's me. <laughs> but for Jesus, it's more urgent and more important to show the word logos in Scripture than it is to show the word right in front of you. Jesus, he's showing us there's more power in seeing Jesus in Scripture than even seeing Jesus right there in your midst. It's more urgent because I think for the rest of us, after he ascends, this is our normal encounter with Jesus. And he's saying, this is the way to find me. This is the way to be transformed by me. This is, this is where the life is. Apparently, knowing that Jesus was alive could wait. Knowing that Jesus was the center of Scripture could not. What would your life look like with a regular rhythm of experiencing God in the Word? 
Imagine if you have children or your future children. What would it look like for your kids to grow up in a home where reading and reflecting and reciting was normal? Imagine a prayer life that was saturated with the language of Scripture. It just poured out of you when you prayed and when you sat with others, when you wept with them. Imagine a season of temptation in the wilderness where because of this lifelong rhythm of Scripture, you're able to say, it is written, and for you know that your identity is secure. Imagine that the wisdom that the Lord gives us, it is able to make you wise into salvation. Imagine that wisdom as you navigate all the turning points of life, as you navigate what it looks like after you graduate, as you navigate what it looks like to choose a spouse, as you navigate which career path, as you navigate where to live. <laughs> These are the things we navigate all the time. I, I, this is every week, right? We, we get together and we talk about the things that we're, we're feeling, the pressures. This is the wisdom is found here. Imagine a life so soaked in the stream of the Spirit of God because we are rooted. And imagine the fruit that could happen in the church. I imagine that for my family, it's compelling. I want to be a man who is blessed like this. I want to be a man who is asking questions in the temple and he's opening up the scriptures. I want to be a man who's resilient enough because I've been tempered by scripture to know the truth of the world in the midst of the lies of the world. And I want Oikos to be a church that has those same groundings and rootedness in scripture. May it be so. Would you stand? I just want to pray a blessing over you. Then I'll invite you to go pick up your children if you have them downstairs. Lord God, we know that you are speaking to us by your spirit. And that your spirit speaks through the word of God in your holy scriptures. Would you make us wise? Would you grow us into salvation? Would you train us and rebuke us and correct us and lead us in the way everlasting? Father, we know that the world, and Father, I know that in my heart, it's like grass and a flower that withers and fades. But we know that the word of the Lord endures forever. Would you anchor us and root us for your cause, for your glory, for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.